everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. I am black on the air. Um, back after a couple weeks off. It seems like this used to happen on the nightly show, guys. Whenever we would go off the air for any amount of time, everything started happening. Like the world would turn inside out. And that was the case uh, these last couple of weeks um, because just everything happened right when we went down. But before I get to that, some people who follow me on Twitter, on Instagram and stuff, see that I got a new dog yesterday. His name is Buster. He's right here. How you doing, Buster? Woo. You're doing good. He's just hanging out. That was that was a, a human doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Buster's just, uh, I would have him close to me here, guys, but he'd be, you know, that. <laughs> you would hear that in the background. You'd think, what's wrong with Larry? What's going on? But he's here. He's just looking on. He's just chilling right now, uh, sitting with Brandy and uh He's doing good. Very happy about that. If you want a dog, you're looking for a dog, I highly recommend it, guys. It's a lot of work, but, um, man, they bring instant joy to your life. He's a cutie. I'll be posting pictures, I'm sure, all the time. I'll be the worst dog owner posting pictures ever. It's horrible. But Buster, here's what happened. So we go down. The day we go down, Cosby, he gets convicted, right? God, I don't even have the facts in front of me. It's just all the feelings. I ain't got facts. I just got feelings today, you guys. Because I really wanted to say some things that day, but we had just dropped our podcast, and I thought, ah, maybe I should do an emergency one. And I'm like, eh, well, I'll just wait, whatever. And I was traveling. It was just kind of difficult. Of course, the first thing I wanted to say is, that's right, motherfucker, I have not forgotten about you. And thank God something actually happened. A lot of people point to the Cosby incident or the Cosby thing, phenomena. I don't know what you want to call it. As kind of, you know, sweeping in the Me Too movement and that type of thing. But there is a big distinction I always wanted to make with that Cosby thing. And, like, many people would ask me, you know, well, why, are you, why are you so after Cosby, man? What do you got against Cosby? I'm like, I don't have anything against Cosby. I have something against rape. And I have something against powerful men being able to get away with this through the collusion of society of not wanting to upset that apple cart. You know, it's Rape that I've always been against, to restate this, and not just rape, but the the type of horrendous crime that Cosby did, people say alleged, but he's convicted now, so at least we can say he did in this one incident. But just the number of women who came out against him over the number of years, was it was devastatingly breathtaking to me. I mean, I could not believe it that it happened for so long, and this guy got away with it. And he basically got away with it because he was famous. And the way in which it was gotten away with for so many years, like people that worked with him and that type of thing, hey, I wouldn't ride an elevator with him alone. Hey, be careful. Like people knew. They knew something was going on. You know, even if they didn't have the details, they knew there was a Cosby creepiness happening, you know, warning you, you know, not to eat any of that jello pudding because it was going to knock you out. That's crazy, you guys. And it took Hannibal Burris doing his act for some momentum to start happening about people getting upset about it. And of course, we did it on my show, you know, just calling it out, not wanting people to forget. And I was very passionate about that, and I still am, you know. And it's it's that collusion of silence that really touched me more than anything that None of these women were believed. And in fact, with Hannibal Buress talking about it, once again, the irony of it took a guy talking about it to have, you know, it start to go viral. But nonetheless, 
the fact that none of these women were believed, and finally there's going to be some justice in this, I think is a good thing. And the Me Too movement, which has come on the heels of that, man, there's something happening all the time. You saw the New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, I think is his name. I may get his name wrong. But here's a guy who apparently was an ally in this movement. My my head is still spinning because the news just happened on this. Supposedly, you know, according to the women he's been involved with, have been abusing them. It's just terrible. Terrible and horrible on the one hand, but also good that these things are coming out, you know. Anyhow, that was one of the things that happened. So, sorry, I'm a little scattered because I'm thinking about Buster. (laughs) The other thing was Kanye, you guys. So my boy Zach was in here. We were talking about Kanye. Thanks, Zach. You were so cool the other week. And uh, Zach's over there laughing. And then Kanye kept going. It was one thing we were talking about being Trump's friend. Everybody lost their heads, which I didn't think that was a big deal. But then he's on TMZ, and I know you guys all saw this. When he's talk- he said slavery was a choice. You know, 400 years, man, that feels like a choice to me. And it feels like Kanye truly is in the sunken place at this point. I feel like if he hadn't gone there voluntarily, <laughs> people have put him there now. And it's kind of interesting to see what's going on. And I don't think Kanye can even hear the words that he's saying. Like, here's one of the things that he said. One of the points I wanted to make on this is that he's not relying on thoughts and strategy is what he said. He said he's just going on feelings. Well, actually, if what you're doing is you're going on feelings, Kanye, that actually is a strategy which required some thought. (laughs) So it's just a horrible strategy. It's a horrible strategy. For Christ's sakes, could you imagine you base your entire life on feelings, you guys? I feel differently all fucking day. You know, if you don't, If you don't want to, you don't feel like going to work, you still have to go. You can't just not go because you don't feel like it. You can't just not raise your kids because you don't feel like it that day. You can't rely on your feelings for everything. Your feelings are not to be trusted. Sometimes they are, but not all the time. It's the facts about situations which are to be trusted. If you're a parent, that's a fact. You got to raise your kids. That's a fact. That situation doesn't care about your feelings. Kanye needs to grow up in this and stop trying to be some guru or something like like he's all mysterious and has been enlightened. And somehow being simpatico with Trump aligns with this enlightenment. That's the part that is so so full of shit as far as I'm concerned. Because whatever, if you want to follow Trump, whatever. But then don't say, well, I haven't read a lot. I'm not too sure about that situation. Well, then, motherfucker, don't preach it. <laughs> if you're not too sure, read. Pick up a book and read. <laughs> Find out. And by the way, you all you have to do is read Trump's tweets and you can see how ridiculous it is to say that you love Trump. You know, I mean, it's one thing. Look, I mean, it's hard enough for to look at the Republicans as they turn themselves into contortionists, uh, the people that actually don't like Trump, but then they act like they do. And they're probably throwing up in their mouths. But, you know, they're kind of spineless politicians. So that makes sense. But you don't have to do that. You're just a person. There's no reason why you have to love Trump. There really isn't a reason. And if you do, it would be nice if you explained it to us clearly with thought and thoughtfulness. So anyway, by the way, I do want to mention that Black on the Air is part of the Ringer Networks, and they have a new show coming out. Uh, It's the Dave Chang Show. Chef Dave Chang has a new show on the Ringer Network, so you guys catch that. Make sure you do. A lot of other things were going on. The latest, of course, is Trump. Oh, Oh, by the way, I have a really good talk with Jake Tapper coming up. Jake has a new book out called The Hellfire Club, which is a very cool book. And I talked to him a few days ago in New York City. 
he was actually in Philly. I was in New York City. We had a good talk. I liked Jake for a long time. He, I love watching Jake's face. I just got a puppy, but Jake makes that sad puppy face all the time <laughs> when he has to report news that makes him sad. And most of the news does make Jake sad. So it was great to have Jake on, and we covered a lot of subjects. And I um, hope you like it. I talked to him a lot about Trump, too, because it's interesting. I think it was CNN reported uh, today that uh, Trump basically said that fake news is news he doesn't like, that is unflattering to him. Guys, I reported this a year ago. I said a year ago, I gave you the definition of what I thought all the news was. And I said fake news is news that he doesn't agree with, that that is fake news. This is old news of what fake news is. I love it when CNN, you know, they always, they're always discovering things that have been in plain sight for so long. You know, well, it appears that Trump is lying. Really, CNN, you're reporting on this. Why are you reporting on things that we already know? But uh, one of the issues right now, which are big issues, and I've always felt that domestically, I'm not as concerned about maybe what happens. I, I think we have a better infrastructure here to survive any damage Trump may do, you know, and he may, some things may be good too. Uh, I think the economy was in good shape before he got into office. But it's the foreign policy that I've been most concerned with. And in the North Korea situation, it looks like something good may happen. But Trump is still an asshole while he's doing it, by the way. Here, here's how much Trump is an asshole. So rather than taking credit, which he could have taken credit for with the three, um, let's say, prisoners who, who they've announced they're releasing from North Korea, he lies about this the other day where he says uh, Obama couldn't release them. And two of them were captured during his administration, were captured a year ago. This is what's fucked up about him, guys. He just casually throws out a lie like that and a stupid lie uh, using people that are, are in another country that are captured under these circumstances. It's those types of lies I can't stand the most. They really fucking anger me. They really make me mad because, first of all, there's really no reason to do it. You know, and I get that you don't like Obama, but fuck you, you know, tell the fucking truth. You got you could share credit on something like that. Be a man about this. These are prisoners of war. Tell the fucking truth. Like, why should I believe you for anything that you're going to do? And why should we give you credit for anything? And I asked Jake that, you know, it may turn out that even despite all this, like really great things happen in North Korea. And people are talking about giving him the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize. If that happens. I'll throw up in my mouth. It's possible things like that can happen. But then you have the Iran deal, which he gets out of in the stupidest way possible. Not saying that the Iran deal was that great or not. You know, I think there are probably some issues with it, whether or not to trust Iran. Maybe not the best thing. But here, here's how it is, guys. And by the way, we didn't give Iran $150 billion, whatever it is. That was Iran's money that we were holding for the past 40 years because we took once the hostage situation happened in 79. So whatever. So they were getting their money back, but whatever, right? So we said, look, here's all this money, and you don't make any nuclear devices. And to reward you or whatever, carrot instead of stick, we're going to use carrot diplomacy here. You get all this money. Trump says— I think that's a horrible idea. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out of the deal. So in other words, if you want to make that nuclear weapon now, you can because there's no deal. And you have the money. What kind of a fucking thing is that, you guys? You have the money, but now you can do whatever you want to do because I'm pulling out of the deal. This is insane. 
This does not make any sense at all. Even if you don't believe the original deal was that great, this is much worse. This is horrible. You can both keep the money, and I don't give a fuck what you do, because I hate that deal because Obama did it, because I hate the black guy who was born in Kenya. That's where we are with this motherfucker. That's where we are. We'll see what happens. Um, I'm very concerned about it, and I will be talking about it a lot. Um, because this motherfucker makes me mad. That's why I got Buster to calm me down. Right, Buster? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got a great show for you today. Jake Tapper's coming up. That's it. All right. Welcome back. Well, my guest today is uh, someone I'm a huge fan of for a long time. He's one of the premier voices in news today, but also in fiction today, Mr. Jake Tapper. Jake. Hey, Larry. How are you, man? It's good to talk to you again. Welcome to Black on the Air. Via, sure. We got, Great to be here. We got Jake uh, via phone from D.C. Um, Actually, I'm in Philadelphia Oh, right you're now. in Philly? You're, such, you're so busy on your tour right now, right? I am, exactly. Yeah. Um, are, you, uh, are, you a, are you a Philly fan? I'm from Philly, yeah. I'm actually That's from right. Philadelphia, so I, this is a homecoming. Yes, I saw you tweeting about the Eagles when they won. You were very happy about that, right? Well, it had been quite a long time coming, <laughs> yes. as I probably don't need to tell you. I'd, yes. I'd been through a lot of painful years with the yeah. Philadelphia Eagles. I remember when I was 11, and they lost their first Super Bowl. So, Ugh. you know, it had, what, what, what is, is there a team you root for? Well, in football, I always say my Rams and Raiders just kind of left me, so it left me homeless for a while. But so my 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 team in sports are the Lakers. That's my team. You know. All right. So, well, so you you're, I mean, you've been through many victorious oh. years. I've been very fortunate with the Lakers, yes. But yeah. we're going through a dry spell right now, and people like to make fun of us and pal them, but, you know, whatever. You need to bring back Michael Cooper with his socks all the way up to the knees. Remember those days with the White Sox? Now, I'm also a Dodgers fan, and we've had a drought since 88. That's a long time. That is a long time. And yeah. I'm old enough to remember uh, when the Dodgers and Yankees were the two preeminent yeah. teams in baseball, and it was right. just one of those teams was going to win, win the World Series every year. So I know. that is a long time. It is a long time. It's a drought, you know. So uh, I, I feel you. I feel you on that, you know. But, uh, hey, man, congratulations on, uh, on your book, uh, The Hellfire Club. Congratulations on it. Thank you so much. It's very... It's cool. It's like very nerve wracking when you write yeah. a novel. Sure. Um, you know what this is like because you, you in a way covered nonfiction, uh, and then you've <laughs> also done fiction. And um, ner- uh, nonfiction is is in some ways tougher because you know you mm-hmm. have to get everything correct, whereas fiction you can just wing it. But fiction. Uh, it's more, you feel more vulnerable when you yeah. put it out there. Well, um, I did write a book a few years ago. Uh, I'd rather we got casinos than other black thoughts was, was my contribution. And it's tough because it was a collection of fake like essays as if someone had collected my black thoughts was the premise. Nice. And, uh, you know, it was really funny, but I feel that pressure because you're writing fiction and you want people to like it. And then there's standards of things that are like that, you know, and, uh, you're jumping right into that huge pool. I'm sure you have people you admire, great fiction writers and that kind of stuff. Was that in the back of your head while you were doing this, like it, it, tapping kind of, you on I mean, the shoulder? Uh-huh. Well, I mean, you know, like my favorite writers, you know, I, you know, reading Walter Mosley or reading sure. um, uh, Pete Dexter or, or reading um, uh, Richard Price. I mean, you know, these are masters of their yeah. craft reading or, or thriller writers that were masters of their craft, Harlan mm-hmm. Coben or James Patterson or Brad Meltzer. And you think, 
oh God, you know, I'm what I'm writing is not that good. But you know, you, I, I just wanted to try mm-hmm. anyway. I just wanted to try. What What was your inspiration for? I just started uh, reading the book. I'm about a, a almost halfway through, and I really enjoy it. I love how you start out too. I mean, you push us right into you know the situation, and and I love how you you bring us back to that era. Um, of the 1950s politically, even just like I imagined I was in that room that you're describing where there was a party where we see the Kennedys and Nixon and all this stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. The um, I, I was inspired when I first heard about the actual Hellfire Club, which was the secret society in England in the 1700s, where uh-huh. nobility and rich merchants and politicians would all get together and do the most debaucherous things. You haven't gotten to that chapter yet, but you will. And um it was a real secret society, and it got me thinking about secret societies in Washington mm-hmm. and how you know they would have these alliances back in England. Why wouldn't they have the same thing in the U.S. Uh, today? And then I um, went back and forth, and then ultimately I ended up uh, putting it in 1954 just because mm-hmm. it's such a rich uh, era in American history, and everyone thinks of it as ideal and innocent when really right. it's, it's horrible and it looks romantic <laughs> on the yes. surface. But it's it's a time of menace and uh, and inequality, yeah. and um, it was just fun to write about. Yeah, I feel like the fifties would probably have been the height of secret debauchery. Well, I think they got. I, I don't. I wouldn't put past put anything past people today. <laughs> well, uh, it's not so it, secret now. That's what I mean. Yeah, you know, debauchery is is debauchery has pretty much had its its coming out. I think you think yeah. I think that there's a whole bunch more we don't know about. I think I mean you, know, you hear about like Jeffrey Epstein's island and uh-huh. girls that would go there and he would bring his rich and powerful friends there and I just think that's just that we don't know anything. That's just the tip that's of the iceberg. True. There's so much going on that we have no idea there, about. There is a class of people at at a certain level. It's that ultra billionaire or whatever it is that have a lifestyle that we can't relate to and do stuff that that we would be shocked by, right? Yeah, I mean, just the, the people who never travel on the train or commercial, uh, people who are, who only travel in limousines, who uh, breathe just rarefied air, never have to. I mean, and then, I, I mean, I do honestly think that some of the, the Me Too explosions that have happened are men of this ilk that just for whatever reason didn't get away with it. Like Harvey Weinstein would mm-hmm. seem to fit in this category, um, except he was just so crass about it that uh, he didn't get away with it. But there, you got to believe that there are men like that who are getting away with it, who are um, just much more uh, smart is not the word I'm looking for, but more crafty about mm-hmm. Uh, they're their debaucherous activities. Perhaps the women are all paid for or highly compensated or, or whatever, but people are getting away with a lot more. And they're, you know, by definition, rich and powerful. Yeah, what's the thing about the Weinstein thing is a lot of people don't realize, well, maybe some people do, but showbiz has always had that kind of silent um, con- uh, contract, you know, where someone yeah. could hold something over your head to for you to get ahead. You know, there was this... Uh, contract that was always kind of there and the sleaziest people, you know, did it the worst, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But it's a horrible thing about showbiz because the the imbalance of power is just the worst probably in showbiz because people have this, it seems like an unattainable dream when you're just starting out um, in showbiz. And if that person ha- holds a door for you, possibly, and there's abuse at the other side of that door, people get caught in it so fast, Jake. It's it's amazing. 
And we see it's not just show business, right? Yeah. I mean, it's my business, too. It's news. I mean, all the headlines. Of the, we still are getting headlines uh, about uh, top anchors like Charlie Rose and Tom Brokaw and yeah. things that they allegedly said and did. And um, it's just... This is, and this is why I think that there are still secret societies today, because rich, powerful men, mainly white men, but I think Bill Cosby shows that it's a gender thing more than anything else, uh, rich, powerful men doing whatever they want to do. Uh, and obviously it's not every rich, powerful man, but there are a lot of them. Did you know a lot about that era, or did you have to do a lot of research when you were uh, starting that book? I did a lot of research. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I superficially knew a lot about it, but then I, mm-hmm. I plunged into reading about Eisenhower and McCarthy right. and Roy Cohn and Jack Kennedy, and, um, and it was even worse than I thought. I mean, yeah. it was even, you know, right. it, it was, it was, it was, it was it, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how bad it was. Like, I didn't know that the Kennedys and, and Joe McCarthy were like, really tight. Well, they were really close with them. Yeah, I mean, I knew that Robert Kennedy was the chief yeah. Democratic counsel on the McCarthy committee, but I didn't know that they socialized. And I didn't know that Ambassador Kennedy convinced Joe McCarthy to not come into Massachusetts to campaign against Jack Kennedy when he ran for Senate in 1952. Mm-hmm. So the more I found out, the more I was able to use actual events and people to further the, the, the plot of the book. Uh, the conspiracy in the book, which has to do with alliances and secret societies and people, right, rich white men doing what they want to do. Yes. And uh, what's interesting is that those alliances kind of work both ways. You know, like there was kind of a, a collegial nature also between uh, people of different, let's say, uh, uh, political sides or whatever, you know, um, that was certainly always kind of happened behind the scenes, even if they were against each other in front of the scenes. You know, do you think that's like gone now? Is is that one of the biggest political differences outside of the secret societies I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, there are two sides to what you're saying. There's, there's first uh-huh. of all, there's like, there's like the good side of that, which right. is, you know, Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden coming together to to draft a legislation so that passes Congress or, the, uh, or that so typical Neil Reagan. Type of stuff, yeah. Right? yeah. Coming together and trying to find you know areas where you can agree on eighty percent so you can get something done. That's mm-hmm. the good side of it. And then the bad side of it is you know the kind of complicity of you know tolerating, uh, for instance, you know sexual abuse or sexual mm-hmm. harassment of staffers in the U.S. Senate, and just like nobody talk about this because you've got you know we have Strom Thurmond and you have Ted Kennedy and let's just agree to not talk about it. It's funny that you bring up Kennedy, that movie Chappaquiddick is out right now. I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? I haven't seen it, but it's interesting to me because I was watching the previews of it. I think it was on your on your channel on CNN. And I was struck by the point of view, how it was really kind of blatantly, it seemed very anti-Kennedy myth, I think is a good way to put it, you know, because the Kennedy certainly created a myth and... And America lovingly like swallowed up that myth about the Kennedy. And when I what I mean by myth is the whole presentation of the Kennedy clan, you know. Yeah, Camelot. Yes, sure. exactly. Uh, minus- I think they very purposely <laughs> embraced the myth of Camelot after John F. Kennedy was shot. I mean, I think completely. You, you don't have to apologize for using the term myth. I mean, I think that was purposeful. No, completely. And the and the Ted Kennedy situation, I don't feel he really paid the social cost for that. He, he may have paid a political cost, but I, I think he was unclear about why he wanted to run for president anyway, you know. But it seems like he never paid the social cost for it. Do you think that's true? Well, I mean, I just remember when Al Franken was 
<laughs> basically yeah. kicked yes. out of the Senate by yeah. his fellow Democrats. Right, for, right. That's true. Yeah. For behavior that I'm not going to excuse, although I don't, you know, I mean, inarguably, he certainly didn't get his day in court in it. I mean, the, the, the Senate Ethics Committee didn't. There wasn't a chance to, ex, you know, to, to hear what these women were accusing him of. Right. Um, but that said, I remember when when Senator Patty Murray, one of the, the the only woman I think in Senate Democratic leadership, or at least the top one, uh, came out against uh, Al Franken, and you might you might remember there was kind of just like a. a a lemming run of, of tweets from senators, starting with Gillibrand and then all the women in the Democratic that. caucus. Yeah, and then when Murray when Murray did it, I remember thinking, God, you know, it was pretty well known that she was literally um, sexually assaulted mm. uh, by Strom Thurmond mm-hmm. when she first came to the Senate. Like he grabbed her breast in an elevator, right. and um, she's never talked about it publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, but it's been written about, and I mean, it's true, it happened. And I just remember thinking, wow, so this story prompts Patty Murray to come forward, Al Franken, but like her, but she, but this is a huge change from 20 years ago when it happened to her by a senator, and she knew what happened, she didn't do it. And then I thought, but by the same token, Ted Kennedy literally was responsible for the death of a woman, yeah, and he was revered in the Senate. What, you know, boy, Al Franken must think he's being held to a standard that nobody in the Senate has been held to. Yeah, as you're you're saying that, I'm just realizing when you look at those two events, how enormously different they are, you know, in in the scope of what was done wrong. Um, Why do you, do you think it's because when Ted Kennedy did that, of course, the world was different, but it also was right on the heels of Watergate. I think it probably also had... A lot more to do with the fact that his brothers had been killed. Yeah, um, there was sympathy there for were, him, right? There was sympathy for mm-hmm. him, and um, and let's be honest. I mean, the the power structure got away with a lot more back then. That's true. They really did. I mean, what was he ultimately charged with? Leaving the scene of an accident or I think something? So. And, yeah. So I mean, he he he. I mean, he didn't murder her, but he got away with murder. I mean, he got away. You know, and and. Um, I mean, technically, he didn't murder her. Well, it wasn't on purpose. It was a miscarriage of morality. Let's put it like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, yeah. let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. I think if you or I, if, if, if oh. we did that, we would we would be charged with much more. It's terrible. Probably do prison time. But I don't and, know. I don't know anybody, Jake. I can't. There's no one in my life who I can think of who would have walked away from a situation like that, you know, and just act like they have to. Like not be caught or whatever it is. I mean, it's so blatantly co- a cold political calculation in the face of in that situation, which is astonishing to me. Yeah, and there's also you know the supposition that the family was paid off, the Kopechny family was paid off because they never said anything about it publicly. Yeah, um, paid off is the wrong term. They were compensated and asked not to speak about it or whatever happened. I mean, it's just it is a different era, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a better era. Where people can't get away with that, but it just, right. it it feels like it turned on a dime because, um, you know, it was just a few years ago when Ted Kennedy endorsed Barack Obama, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, as if Moses was coming down from Mount Exodus with the twin, you know, the tablets, um, and, you know, he he was he was not treated as um, somebody who had caused the death of a 
of a young woman well, uh, in well, this really sketchy episode. This movie never would have been made before to, before no, now. Absolutely not. Well, look how long Strom Thor- Thurmond remained a senator. Uh, when you bring up Thurmond, you know. How about the fact that he that the biggest racist in Senate history, or at least modern Senate history, had a black daughter? Yes. Well, I mean that goes. That's there's a lot of history to that. I always tell people, you know, the right. reason why I'm light skinned is the cream was poured into the coffee, not the other way around. You know. Right. And <laughs> it, like, it was right, and it wasn't. There probably wasn't a whole lot of romance going no, on. No, I don't think so. That's a whole another uh, fraught right. history. You know. Do you think the Do you think the current political system is irrevocably broken. It seems broken to me. And what I mean by broken is it's so tribal now in a way that I've never seen. Like, even in, during the Bush administration, they got together to do some things, you know. But I felt like once Obama became president, all of that working together seemed over to me. It seems hideous mm-hmm. um, and worse than it's ever been. One of the theme, one of the themes in, in the Hellfire Club is uh, the main character. His name's Charlie Martyr. He's right. a he's a, an Eisenhower Republican, new congressman, World War II hero. He comes down to Washington with his wife, who's a strong woman and, mm-hmm. an, and a zoologist, and uh, he wants to do good. He's he's tries to do something to keep this one company that made bad gas masks in World War II from getting government money, right. and he ends up doing compromise after compromise after compromise to achieve this end. And this is one of the things I see in Washington all the time, which is good people come to Washington to try to do good things, and they end up making these little compromises. Sometimes they're just, well, I'm not going to criticize anybody from my party. I'm not going to criticize President, I'm a Republican, so I'm not going to criticize President Trump. I'm a Democrat, so I'm not going to criticize Nancy Pelosi, whatever. Uh, those are the smaller compromises. And then there are the larger compromises that people make about, well, you know, the only way to preserve me staying here and doing good things is for me to make as much money as I can, raise as much money as I can, uh, endear myself to as many people as I can, et cetera. So that's one of the themes of the book. And, and, um, I don't think it's gotten any better. I mean, there have been advances in reform laws since Watergate, mm-hmm. and there have been there's more transparency today than there was. But by the same token, the money, the need for money, is so great. You talk to members of Congress, um, and they talk about to a third to that to half of their day is spent raising money mm-hmm. to to get reelected. Right. Um, uh, they have to travel all over the country to raise money, uh, schmoozing, kissing bud of rich people. Um, it's it's hard to figure out how this system would uh, would naturally result in good things happening for the public. It seems designed <laughs> to erode good things yeah. and and principle. So you should feel despondent about the state of America politics because it's it's pretty awful. Yeah, it's pretty bad. One one of the things that. I love about you too, Jake, is what I call the Jake frown. (laughs) I mean, I know people have commented on it and everything. Yeah, Michelle Wolf had something to say about it the other night. Yeah, I want to ask you about that in a little bit too. But uh, how hard is it? I don't know if I asked you. Oh, and by the way, uh, did I mention that you were on the nightly show? And we actually didn't drink a forty ounce. We just you just had it in front of you, right? I, I remember you took a sip of the 40 ounce. I just want to give Jake Tapper props, you guys, for having a 40 ounce on national television. That is the best gift. Yes. I've used that gift like a yes. thousand times. It's fantastic. All the time. Yeah. So, so that's like one big uh, Jake gift. But the other fantastic is the sad puppy eye Jake gift. 
which is which is my favorite. But I always wanted to ask you, how hard is it for you to keep your opinion from separate from straight reporting, or do you, or do you? I don't find it opinion about what. I don't find it difficult to keep my opinions mm-hmm. about policy issues separate because the truth is, I try to really be as agnostic as possible about. Okay taxes or immigration policy or North Korea or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that said, there are certain standards of fact and law and order and decency that I try to take a stand for. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult for me not to weigh in if somebody is just saying something that's not true or if somebody is behaving uh, indecently or, or defending behavior that's indecent. But I think that that's we need to do that. Journalists need to do that. And, and I think a lot of us are in this era when the indecent is becoming mainstreamed. We yes. can't pretend that it will ever be acceptable to say of a POW, he's not a war hero. No, uh, he's a war hero because he was captured. I prefer people who weren't captured. No, that is terrible. not an acceptable thing to say. No, nope. It's an offensive thing to say. I agree. And I said it immediately that, when it happened. Yeah. I was shocked. And, I'm, and, and I was... I was already a big fan of John McCain. I always have been. So it was on two levels. It's personally this, who I consider a hero, and just someone running for president to make that statement against our veterans and our military people is horrendous to me. Yeah, no, and it's and uh, but only in this world, uh, the, this world that we're in now with with President Trump, is defending John McCain's war heroism. Yeah. Or pointing out that it's ridiculous to say Ted Cruz's dad was in on the Kennedy assassination. Only is that liberal. You know, you're defending John McCain and Ted Cruz, and suddenly you're a part of the liberal media. And it's because it, everything, because nothing matters. It's just all nonsense. I know. And Republicans aren't even, many Republicans, I feel, by not really speaking out against those types of things. Like, there's a Trump Kool-Aid that is even more dangerous than whatever your ideological side is. Because many people on the right think the left is destroying America. People on the left think the right is burning down society or whatever. Like, both sides think that about the other side. That's just a fact. But I don't care what side you're on. To me, I just feel Trump is dangerous to so many of our institutions. And I know that sounds, you know, liberal flamethrowing, whatever. But um, I don't see how he's helping anything. Um. And if he he's def- and if he does, it's by accident. He's definitely <laughs> look. I mean, remove the policy from it for a second. Just remove yes. what he wants to do for opioid abuse or the VA or taxes or North Korea or whatever, um, because that should and that should be debated on its merits. In, yeah, it's like a policy. Any other policy. Right. Yeah, he is clearly leading a degradation of discourse in this country. Uh, he clearly says things that aren't true all the time. He clearly tells lies. Uh, And he clearly um, is leading a, uh, is eroding the concept of what it it is to to talk publicly. Um, You know, just a few weeks ago, he said something, one of his former aides had said something mildly critical of Mm -hmm. how Donald Trump had treated Michael Cohen, his fixer. And the president went on Twitter and made fun of his drug and alcohol dependency issues, Ugh, this, this former aide. It's so and it's horrible. Just like, this is not how we talk about no. these things. It's so horrible. This is, this is, we, this, is, this is, I mean, or the way he talks about women or the way uh, he talks about Muslims. I mean, it's just, there is uh, a, a degradation of the discourse that we see all the time. And, mm-hmm. and there are Republicans who say things about it. 
Um, but they're few and far between. Um, you know, I heard Christy Todd Whitman, the former yeah, New Jersey governor, Republican, and mm-hmm. EPA head, uh, on CNN this morning talking mm-hmm. about it and how much it upset her. Yeah. Um, but this is also one of the themes in, in my novel, which is uh, because in 1954, Joe McCarthy is at the height of his power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the book takes place, early 1954. And the main character, who's an Eisenhower Republican, talks with McCarthy. He talks with Roy Cohn. He talks with Margaret Chase Smith, the senator from Maine, a real woman who is one of the heroes of American politics in the 20th century. She spoke out against McCarthy on the floor of the Senate in 1950. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ed Murrow didn't go after him until 1954. Right. So she was way ahead of the curve. And I talk about in the book the compromises people make um, on these issues when it comes to McCarthy. And, mm-hmm. you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And there's a lot of rhyming if you read about McCarthy and you think about today. There's a lot of rhyming. And, you know, the people who thought that they could straddle and not really take a stand on McCarthyism or, you know, just kind of frown and, but, you know, he does good things and whatever. You know, they don't come out so great in real life, you know, 70 years later. There was a guy named Senator um, Bob Taft. He, was the, he ran for president against Eisenhower. He lost in 52, uh-huh. and he was the Senate Majority Leader uh, in 53. And he tried to kind of, like, downplay McCarthy, not that big a deal. Why do you guys pay so much attention to him? He never took a stand against him. And I'm sure he thought he would be president someday and that his, um, his kind of the Taft Republican would be uh, – strong conservative. That's what he would be known for, for being a strong conservative Republican. But part of his legacy now is he didn't take a stand against McCarthy. That's a big part of his legacy. He mm-hmm. died suddenly in 1953. You don't really get to write your own legacy. Right. You just have to take the moral stands you take and hope that history sorts out uh, what you did right. Uh, and at the end of the day, you, you don't get to, you know, as they say in, in Hamilton, uh, you don't control who writes your story. <laughs> exactly. You know, some of that, and you also are writing at a time when the, um, I believe the parties were a little more, had a little more variation in them in terms of what they could stand for. Like, for instance, um, both Republicans, like Republicans were also a progressive party as well as a conservative party. They were both of that. You know, you had moderate Republicans that were very supportive of like the Civil Rights Act. And you have many of your Southern Democrats who were virulently against it, you know, those those Dixiecrats, you know, and both parties had that in their party, you know, had the John Birch Society on the Republican side, you know, that. And it's interesting to me that after Johnson, you know, Johnson being the president, of course, passed that legislation, it seemed like that mantle of supporting civil rights for some reason is only on the Democratic side. I don't understand how the Republicans could let something like that out of their fingers when you talk about history, you know. Um, And people wonder why blacks vote primarily in a block for the Democratic Party. I think I partly blame the Republicans for letting that happen. Yeah, I mean, there really aren't that many moderates left in either party. I mean, both parties have been drawn. uh, Republican moderates are made fun of. But then again, so are Democrat moderates are ridiculed as well, you know. I I can't have any time I have Joe Manchin on my show. <laughs> yes, he's from West Virginia. From West, he's a West Virginia yes. Democrat, right. and he votes like Democrat, like what, like ninety five percent of the time. Sure, sure, but he's a hawk, know? right? Um, but 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 uh, you know, he's a union Democrat, but right. he's, but he's you know he's he's a gun rights guy, 
And I'm sure he's not like pro EPA, given the fact that he represents all those, you know, the coal industry, et cetera. Right. But he's, you know, he's a Democrat. That's the best Democrat you're going to get out of West Virginia is the point to the Democratic front, to sure. most any Democrats listening. That's the best Democrat you're going to get out of West Virginia. But anytime I have him on the show, all these people are like, why doesn't he just convert to Republican already? <laughs> he, I mean, he votes with, he votes with you 95% of the time. Like, what is your, and the same thing if you interview I mean, it's just crazy when I, you know, if John McCain gets mentioned or right, right, right. or Ben Sass or, you know, some Republican who just like says things like, hey, you know, it's not funny to make fun of handicapped people. He's a rhino. Like, um, yeah, exactly. Rhino, liberal. What? <laughs> it's just crazy. But I think, you know, the Twitterization of our politics is a, oh, it's it was terrible. happening before Twitter, but it's not good. Yeah. And of course, Trump makes that worse with his stuff. I want to ask you this. How should journalists deal you brought up Michelle Wolf's performance at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah. Um, well, what what was your take on that? By the way, did you have a take on that? I laughed at the joke about me. I mean, that was you know, <laughs> that was uh, that was fun. It was uh, amused a lot of people, including my wife. Laughed a little too hard. Yes. Very good. Um, and then, um, you know, look. I mean, I didn't laugh at every joke she told. Um, but that's a tough gig, as you know, uh, you want to be edgy and entertaining, but you, you, I mean, you can't not offend the last time somebody did that and didn't offend anybody was rich little. And well, uh, I think he offended everybody. Yeah. <laughs> everybody well, exactly. that likes comedy. I think he offended. Right. Exactly. Sorry, rich exactly. But my, my thing is this, um, I've been trying to have a conversation on my show for the last two and a half, three years okay. about decency and what, what is acceptable to say in, mm -hmm. in public discourse. And, you know, if, if the Trump White House and Trump supporters in the media want to join this conversation and talk about indecency, I'm, I welcome them to the table. But we got, a, we got a big backlog of stuff before we get to Michelle Wolf's routine yeah. at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We, we, we can start with they're sending drug dealers, they're sending rapists. We can go to... John McCain's not a war hero. We can talk to total and complete ban on Muslims entering the U.S. We can go to look at Carly Fiorina's face. Who would vote for that? I mean, there is a long, long list of indecent comments that have been made by President Trump. And we can get to a comedian later um, before, but, but we got a lot of work to do before we get there. I mean, my standards of behavior are higher for a president than they are for, no offense, for a comedian. No, offense not taken. Um, I agree with you. I, I felt like the biggest problem people had was that she took Kellyanne Conway and um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders to their face that they're liars. Like, to me, that's what people, I mean, the, the type of joke she told to tell that they were offended by, but the content of the joke that made people uncomfortable was that she told them to their face that they're liars. I mean, that really is at the heart of it, at the offense to me. And to me, I'm like, well, stop lying. I mean, then <laughs> somebody like Michelle Wolf doesn't have to do that joke because I, I've never seen people fall over themselves so much to have to support the president's lines, you know. And yeah. in some ways, you could say Sarah Huckabee Sanders are they're maybe kind of victims of having to work for the president. But the twisting and turning and the contortions that have to be done just to support, and some of them are just lazy lies that the president makes too. You know, like crowds, yeah, crowd size is just a lazy lie. Give me a break, you know. Yeah, no. Well, there's a lot of. It's. I mean, he just 
He, I mean, according to well, the Washington Post fact-checking team, the president's told, I think yes. a few days ago, 3,001 yes. lies of becoming that, president. Yeah. And they said That's he started crazy. off at 4.9 false statements a day. Yeah. And in the last two months, he's increased the pace to nine false statements a day. I mean, newspapers now cover... That you know the, that, that that why the president's legal team doesn't want him to uh, testify before Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. Did they just state as a fact that because the president tells lies, right? They just state exactly. it as a fact, which which it is. Yeah. So I mean, I I don't find it very surprising. Um, I didn't find it surprising that uh, Michelle Wolf took uh, Huckabee and and um, Huckabee Sanders and Kellyanne Conway to task for it. I will say, and look, I I don't, I'm not. Uh, the comedy police. You know, I wasn't out mm-hmm. there, you know, after you or Jimmy Kimmel or Seth Meyers or Conan or, I mean, whatever. That's not my role. I don't like go out there and say, I like this joke. I didn't like that joke. I'm just supposed, when you guys make fun of me, I smile and lift my glass. That's my only job is, uh, is to, is to be a good sport when I get mocked. Um, but I, I do think some people were legitimately offended by some of the jokes that they thought about Sarah were aimed at her appearance. Now, I know that um, Michelle Wolf has said the jokes were not ab- about her appearance, that when he, she compared her to Aunt Lydia from Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. uh, that was not about her looking like Aunt Lydia from Handmaid's Tale. But I don't watch that show. Um, my wife does religiously, but, but, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't, but if you Google Aunt Lydia, right. I mean, I think that there was a physical element of the joke that made it land the way it did. It wasn't just that uh, in Michelle Wolf's mind... Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a tool of patriarchy oppressing women. I think there was something like, and she looks like her a little bit too. I mean, in my in my view, comparing her to a softball coach, girl softball coach, or women softball coach. I mean, I think there were elements of making fun of her appearance uh, that she, people are more sensitive to. Right. I mean, look, she made she made fun of Chris Christie's appearance exactly. too, and, 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 Mitch and, and, Mitch, and Mitch McConnell, and nobody cares about that. But I do think that was the reason for some of it. But I also agree with you that there's a little reflexive, like, hey, look, I'm fair. I'm standing up for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. And to me, Jake, I mean, seriously, I feel like I blame this on the president because if he's sitting there and by the way, when the president is there, he gets to make fun of people, too. You know, he gets to do his own set. I think he kind of left Sarah Huckabee Sanders up there to take those jokes. You know, I mean, he should be there taking those jokes and you know, bearing the brunt of it and being good-natured about it. I think that eases that tension in the room. I mean, I, I remember when I did it, it was a little different because I, I was just going after everybody. Like, there were no prisoners at all, you know. But Obama was very gracious. He was very gracious, Jake, with, you know, with me when he really didn't—he didn't have to be. But that was—he was—that's just who he kind of was, you know. He, he made you feel comfortable, even if that didn't—you know, wasn't necessarily—was his favorite thing. I—, I I did a joke about him uh, dropping bombs, you know, the drones and all that stuff. And he just yeah. did, he just did his ooh, you know that. But it was it gave me permission to at least make that joke, you know. He um yeah, I mean he had a detachment from it that I thought was healthy. I mean one of the points of the dinner <clears throat> is you go there and you show that you can laugh at yourself, whether you're the president or a CNN anchor or whomever. Right and. One of the things that I was on Kimmel the other night and he pointed out to me and I had not seen the tape until Mm -hmm. he showed it to me, but he pointed out to me that, uh, I, I won a journalism award. Me and a CNN crew won a journalism award. Yeah, I saw that. Congratulations. Thanks for reporting on when the intelligence chiefs briefed President Obama and then President-elect Trump on the existence of this dossier. And, um, 
when we went up, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't notice it at the time. But Sarah did not stand up mm-hmm. uh, or even acknowledge us. She put her, she had her back to us. Yeah. She was looking out at the audience. She didn't. I mean, everybody on the dais stood and uh, you know shook our hand. Mm-hmm. And now I have won that award before mm-hmm. for reporting on the Obama administration back when I was a White House correspondent for ABC News. And you know, every single time was for a story Obama hated. Yeah. It was about his Health and Human Services Secretary nominee having not paid taxes mm-hmm. on a driver. It was about U.S. bonds about to be downgraded. It was about him firing his director of national intelligence. And every single time I won that award during the Obama years, reporting on something that Obama hated, and you know that he and I did not have a great relationship. Right. Uh, he's not he's not keeping in touch with me post-presidency. <laughs> yes, um, but like every, there's no president that had a love affair with the press. No, everybody That's hates for the sure. press. He, of had, course. He, had nicer, he had nice, he had generally nice media coverage, I would say. But anyway, yeah. be that as it may, my only point is every single time Obama stood, shook my hand, posed for a photograph with me for winning an award for covering something about his presidency that he hated. Right. Every single time. Yeah. And... Uh, Sarah Sanders, this wasn't even a, a, this wasn't even about her. It was about President Trump, and it was mm-hmm. just about the intelligence chiefs briefing him. And like you can think that like the intelligence chief shouldn't have done that, or mm-hmm. the dossier's partisan nonsense, or, or whatever you want to think. But we reported on this story, and it was true. And I mean, it's just that to me was probably more important. Uh, just in terms of the the policy it represented in terms of, mm-hmm. and I, I heard Michelle Wolf talk about this on Fresh Air, um, that yeah. she wasn't there to honor journalism. Well, I mean, I don't know why she was there. She didn't show up by her actions. She was there to represent the, the uh, administration, I guess. But to me, that goes back to Trump's attack on the fourth estate. And I think those attacks are very dangerous. I've talked about this a lot on my podcast. It's the thing I'm most concerned about that is mixed up with how he's normalized lying, you know, as well. But I think his his direct attacks, calling it fake news, and not just not just calling it fake news as a joke, Jake, but where I think the people who are in what I call the Trump Kool-Aid, you know, and, and some of it is the Fox News audience and that type of thing. I mean, I don't think they would believe anything that comes from the mainstream media at this point. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's really, really And that's unhealthy. Donald Trump. It's really unhealthy. There was a poll, I don't know if you saw this, but like a week or two ago, there was a poll showing that 51% of the American, uh, I'm sorry, 51% of Republicans think that the media is the enemy of the American people. I know. That's whole, If there's ever an institution to put a check on governance, it's the, it's journalism, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, and, well, I mean, it's impossible to say that, look, whatever you think of Donald Trump, and you could think he's a great president sure. and the media is, is, is biased and all that, but whatever you think of President Trump, it is impossible to argue that the legislative branch, that the Congress, is conducting aggressive oversight as they are obligated to do. And sure, I don't think the Democrats... Uh, were doing aggressive oversight during the Obama years, but you can't even compare the two. I mean, the, the Scott Pruitt versus. Well, I just mentioned uh, the HHS secretary who didn't get the nomination because mm-hmm. I reported, uh, the, you know, after I reported the fact that he hadn't paid taxes on a on a on a driver he had. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's, I mean, he was supposed to, Tom, that's Tom Daschle, he was supposed to be not only the secretary of HHS, he was also supposed to work in the White House as the chief White House advisor exactly. on health care. Right. You don't need Senate confirmation for that job. No. But because, Cong, because of Obama, and you can think it was because he was so ethical, or you can think it was because he was um, afraid of what uh, the press said about it, whatever the reason, he did not put Tom Daschle, he withdrew Tom Daschle's name, from cabinet secretary and didn't even put him in the White House. I know. Even though you don't need Senate confirmation, just because of the appearance of impropriety and they wanted to be as ethical as possible. Compare that to Scott Pruitt. I mean, there are like 12 investigations, literally 12 investigations going on right now into Scott Pruitt and his behavior and staying at the house of a of an energy lobbyist and only paying $50 a night. And I mean, just it goes on and on and on. And is Congress doing aggressive oversight of this? I, it's no, hard to argue not. that they are. So thank God the press is around. And uh, the other thing that's happening these days, I want to get your take on this, too, because it seems to me like news organizations are now, like, attacking other news organizations. <laughs> I've yeah. never seen this before. I mean, that was John Stewart's job, right? But right. I'll see, like— CNN or MSNBC will show like Sean Hannity and then they'll take it down, you know, like they'll do their attacks. And then on Fox, you know, they'll show you guys and they'll do their routine. And I'm like, what's going on? When did this become a tit for tat type of thing? This is like a, a bizarro universe to me. Um, it is uh, probably because uh, uh, John Stewart focused a lot more on. Uh, cable, especially during the Obama years, let's be honest, uh, uh-huh. than, than Trevor Noah does. Trevor has the, uh, the Trump years to, to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't do a lot of, I don't do a huge amount of that. I, I, I don't like it. I mean, I could do a, I'm sure it actually would be great for ratings uh, uh, to do a, you know, what did Fox do in the last 24 hours yeah. segment on my show. But I don't, that's not my job, really. I'm not a media critic. I'm not a. Me- I don't really cover right. the media. It, it's. I think it's so inherently so biased. Anyway, obviously, we're competing with them in terms of ratings. Yeah. So, um, who you know, cares? Like, then, yeah. I, I agree. So we cover some stuff. Like I have covered, you know, like when Bill O'Reilly lost his job or whatever. Like that was a big. That was a major story. It's the same way we covered Matt Lauer losing his job or well, Charlie Rose losing his job. That's but, sexual harassment, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. But the day in, day out of look at these silly people or look how awful this news organization is. It's not my cup of tea. I don't really get it. Um, and it, it just seems, it seems when people do it, like as a matter of course, mm-hmm. um, I'm not, that's not to say I've never covered something that they've said or whatever, especially because now Fox plays this outsized role with the government. It's not even yes. that they're state media. It's not fair even to Fox to say that it's more like Trump is a Fox president, right? I mean, he gets his mm-hmm. ideas from Fox half the time. Yes, so it's not that's like, exactly right. Well, he began like by... them. They control him come he, sometimes. Yeah, he began by getting his ideas from Ann Coulter. And then when he didn't <laughs> implement them right. all, she got... She turned she to him. Upset. Yeah, he had to turn to Fox. And I call them Fox and Friends with Benefits is my term for them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so, yes. uh, but I find it kind of petty. And uh, yeah. and not focused on what's important. No. It's not. It's not. What's important is um, what the government's doing and uh, international relations and how people are living and all that stuff. And I just find it a little navel-gazy, yeah. uh, which is not to make light of what media reporters do, media critics, that's important. But in terms of as an anchor, I don't really feel the need to focus on what Sean Hannity said or did the night before. And I don't, 
you know, every now and then I might tweet something or retweet something, but like it's not really my thing. They they have their thing. They want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, what's well, their tech on on mainstream media, which they've been doing yeah. for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Here's a very tough question for you. Okay. Uh oh. If North Korea denuclearizes, all right. If this whole thing <laughs> turns out, it, does Trump deserve a Nobel Peace Prize, Jake Tapper? Um, and keep it 100% real, Jake. I'm going to keep it 100%. You didn't think I gave it 100% last time I was on your show, and I didn't I had fully to, understand. I think I had to give you some weak tea. I think I had yeah, to you gave some me some weak tea. tea. Yeah. Um, does Donald <laughs> Trump deserve a Nobel Peace Prize if, if, there, is a, yes. if, if there is a lasting Correct. and secure denuclear is, North Korea and peace yes. on the peninsula? And the yeah. end to this 60, how long has it yes. been? 68, 65-year war? Yes, no, yes. absolutely, and and by the way, I mean he, he one that he would share, I think, with uh, President Moon, yes, uh, and others. But but yes, definitely, and and I will go further. I will say, mm-hmm. and I don't even think Obama thought he deserved his Nobel Prize. No, he didn't. No, but I think I mean his whole speech was basically. But he didn't give I don't it back. This prize, but he didn't yeah. give it back. <laughs> brother, give brother, it back. I mean, brothers he, he, aren't giving that back. <laughs> It's very. I mean, you're talking about the drones. I mean, like it's like completely. Barack Don't Obama might have done a lot of things. Okay, I won't. I won't. No, but no, yeah. no. I know exactly where you're going on that. I will keep it a hundred. I think I'm keeping it a hundred. Did you make that up, by the way? No. Like the that's been around a long time. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I see. Just, I see the uh, emoji, emoji of one hundred, and then I think that yes. that's Larry Wilmore is doing. No, the expression's been around a long time, but um, I have. There's this term called Columbusing. It's when white people discover something that people of color known for years. And so a lot of people Columbus that on my show, you know, to keep it in a hundred. Well, uh, you kind of you kind of Columbus it, even though you're not white. <laughs> no, 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 no. I put it out there. That's what I'm saying. You know, so so people could know mm. what that was. Come on, Jake. You know, I'm helping you. I'm helping. <coughs> I'm helping a brother out out there. I'm letting you know what that is. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one that you gave you the forty ounce. You didn't bring the forty ounce to the studio. That would have been a whole different level of Jake Tapper. If you rolled into our studio and said, <laughs> "All right." How many of you? <laughs> how many of you motherfuckers want a forty ounce before we get started? That would have been great. That oh, it would have been awesome. Thing. That would have been Hall of Fame, you know. I would. I should have. But um, I will say this. Uh, okay, so I discovered it. But that's from that, you. Yes, I was going to say that's very straightforward of you to say he would deserve that. I mean, do you think it's possible for Trump to be a horrible person and a good president? I think it's possible. I'll go farther than that. Okay. I think you could, first of all, I don't think being a good person has anything to do with how good a president you True. are. True. I agree with that. I agree. Um, and, um, I think that, I, I mean, a new, uh, a Nobel prize, a Nobel peace prize is about an achievement. Yes. Uh, it's not necessarily about a presidency. Um, so I think mm-hmm. it's possible to, not only is it possible to be a horrible person and a good president, I think it's horrible. I think it's possible to be a horrible person and a bad president, and also win the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. Uh, I think that is all possible yeah. um, because it's about one singular achievement. And you know, people who are Republicans but not necessarily Trump supporters think that he actually does deserve some credit for mm-hmm. what's going on. That his mm-hmm. stance um, worked, and nobody's pretending that like. You know, the national security advisor at the time, H.R. McMaster, wrote some of these wackier tweets about <laughs> right. having a big button or whatever. Yes. But, you know, did the national security team kind of like use the tweets and it worked? Maybe. We'll see. I mean, it's still early. 
and uh, Kim Jong-un is capable of all sorts of horrific things. I would, um, I would only say if by some chance of fate, Trump got a Nobel Peace Prize for that, not only shared it with the South Korean president, I believe they should also share it with Dennis Rodman. That's my personal belief. <laughs> um, he's the go-to. And Seth Rogen. Yes. And Seth Rogen. Although, but Dennis Rodman, he's both Trump's boy and, and, and Kim Jong-un's boy. You know, he's both of them. I mean, he played ball down there in, in Korea, and he was on The Apprentice. You know? So you know what? You raising the subject of um, mm-hmm. Dennis Rodman makes me think. You know Chekhov's gun? There's this, there's yeah, of this course. Thing I'm, and, and, I, yeah. I'm a theater major. Who are you talking to? Right. Okay, yeah. so there you go. So just to explain for yes. your um, your listeners, like, so Chekhov's gun is this theory that if, you, if, you, if a gun appears in Act 1, Correct. it better have gone off by Act 3. And I feel like we're in Season 3 of, of, of Trump mm-hmm. now. And there are all these checkoff guns appearing, like all of a sudden Sean Hannity is the third client of Michael Cohen, or all right. of a sudden, you know, all this, like Stormy Daniels appears once again, you know, all this stuff. Sure. And I feel like Dennis Rodman, I think you have just set the stage for Dennis Rodman to actually appear at the summit. <laughs> wow. I feel like he's, he's a checkoff gun. Like Don King showed wow. up the other day at Mar-a-Lago, and I'm like, this is, this is checkoff's not just a gun, he has like a, his armaments, just, oh, a, no. just a stockpile, a cache of weapons. And, and now Dennis Robbins going to show up because, you, because you, you said that. See, and I believe that Chekhov's gun was when he started the birther movement with Obama when he made the public. And now racism has blossomed fully <laughs> in the administration. Well, that's definitely a gun going off. But that, uh, I, the first time I used the term in politics was when um, uh, – Comey came out and said 10 days before the election or 11 days before the election that um, Hillary Clinton's, uh, the investigation was reopening because of um, compu- because of files they found on Anthony Weiner's computer. Yeah, that's crazy. And I'm like, oh, that dude, now it all makes sense. Why would you introduce him in Act 1? Here he is in Act 3. See, and to me, I would call that Dave's ex machina, uh, another theatrical term, where nice. the gods come down in the final act to resolve the play. And that is exactly what happened. The God. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of Hillary people that don't think of James Comey <laughs> as a god. Yes, well, the Deus Ex Machina certainly helped the Trump campaign to have the story end up the right way for them. Last question, Jake. And thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. Sure. Um, I hope you're having a great time in Philly. Hey, man, the 76ers look amazing, too, I have to say. They look good, and the Phillies aren't bad. They it's got a pretty the good future. year, but that, that Super Bowl was just. Oh, mm. That was awesome. And Villanova, your Nova boys. Yeah. Um, so is there a future for you as a novelist? Do you think that's something you, you'd want to, like, at some point go, you know what? I'm, you know, I don't need to anchor. I don't need to be close to the Situation Room anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you think it's something I, you want to keep doing, or is this like a one-off? It's definitely not what I want to keep doing, like, full-time job. That's all I want to do. I mean, I really love the news, and I mm-hmm. really love being part of the daily conversation. Yeah. Um, but I do think I might want to write another one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just found out that we're the, the Hellfire Club's going to debut on the New York Times bestseller list. We're going to be number three for fiction. Yeah, a week from Sunday when it comes out, May 13th. And, and the movie rights? Um, they're shopping them around. I don't know what's going to happen nice. with that. You know, Hollywood is a weird I place. I know. We'll see. Um, but uh, so, yeah, maybe. And I have an idea. I like t- this taking place in 1954. Yeah. For my next one, theoretically, I have an idea, which is in 1962, President Kennedy was going to go out to L.A. Ooh. And Frank Sinatra That's right. desperately wanted him to stay yes. with him, built houses in the compound, did a whole bunch of stuff. And Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, came in and said, 
no, there's no way we can do that. Yeah. Sinatra has mob ties. We're not doing that. And that just seems to me like such a great, great story. Backdrop, backdrop for something else having to do with these characters, Charlie and Margaret. He actually never even informed Sinatra, and he landed and went to Bing Crosby's house. He couldn't have chosen a worse place to go. A Republican. <laughs> yes. One of the most famous Republicans yes. in Hollywood. Bing Crosby, of all people. Uh, Jake Tapper, the Hellfire Club, guys. It's so much fun reading this book, as James Patterson calls it, a superior thriller. Um, and I want you to stay in news for a long time because Jake's one of my faves, guys. Thanks, Jake, Larry. Jake Tapper. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, cool.